you'd like to, uh, today I would encourage you to open your Bibles to the Ten Commandments, and you're going to find those in Exodus chapter 20. Um, we'll actually be looking at verse 13 this morning, Exodus 20, 13. I said to somebody, I'm preaching on murder today, and they said, are you for it or against it? I'll let you know. <laughs> and Dan uh, served God in Texas for a while, Dan Wetzel, and I think they have a motto about murder there. If you kill us, we'll kill you right back. Something like that. I think I read that. Yeah, that's a good one. This uh, sermon is on a YouVersion Bible app. So if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can follow along that way. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 is where we'll be in a short time. I don't know if you know uh, Otzi the Iceman. How many know who Otzi the Iceman is? O-T-Z-I, the Iceman. Anybody? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lucy. You know who he is, right? Yeah, there's a picture of him right there. Um, he is a natural mummy, uh, and he has been around since they found him, well, we know he's been around since they found him in 1991. There were a group of people who were hiking in the Alps, some tourists, and they came upon, as the snow happened to be melting in this one particular place, they came upon this mummy, and it is estimated that he lived, count him, 5,300 years ago, and his body is mummified. His story is kind of put pieced together with forensic scientists, and they give an interesting picture of his life, but an even more interesting picture of his death. Because you see, Otzi, as nice a guy as he appears to be in his photo, he was actually someone who was murdered. Chief Inspector Alexander Horn in the Munich Criminal Investigation Department said, the cause of death is most likely due to an arrow that hit him in the left shoulder blade, causing massive bleeding. And it kind of sounds, when you read about the story, it just kind of puts you in mind of some kind of Sherlock Holmes novel, you know. There's the the characters, the cast includes the hikers and the archaeologists and the experts in forensics and the radiologists and the the anthropologists all going through and and looking, what happened to Utsi? How did he get like this? Judging actually from the depth of the arrow, Beneath the Iceman's skin, they estimate he was shot from behind at about 30 yards. And his right hand gives a little bit more to the story of what might have happened to him because investigators say that perhaps one or two days before the murder, perhaps he was in a fight because his hand that he would use to defend himself, his right hand, had a massive injury as though it had been cut, slashed by a knife. Maybe it was a revenge killing for that fight. Maybe there was something retaliatory there in that murder. In any case, that kind of violent escalation is something that the investigators said is common. It is common to what we experience even today. Escalation. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Because generally, murder doesn't start with murder. It starts with somebody thinking differently than you, and somebody expressing that in a way that you find offensive. And then that offense is taken to a higher place called anger. And then that anger expresses itself through some kind of conflict, usually verbal at first, and sometimes it gets physical. And in this case, in the end, it ends with an arrow just under the left shoulder blade where the person bleeds out. The lead investigator, that Alexander Horn guy, remarked, it's interesting, he said, because you still see these kinds of behaviors nowadays 
in homicide cases. I don't think they've changed over the past 5,000 years because it's always the same. We have emotions of revenge, anger, strong emotions of hate. I think he's kind of right. It hasn't changed a lot in the past 5,000 years. We are moving through some Bible stories, and we're going to talk about the sixth commandment. It's in verse 13 of Exodus 20, and uh, it's pretty short. It's four words. You shall not murder. Short and sweet. That's it. Let's sing the closing song, and we'll pronounce the benediction. We'll go home. You may feel like it's irrelevant. Maybe you feel like it's more relevant than I know. It is relevant because because giving attention to this commandment is about more than just making sure you don't kill somebody. It's more than that. We're going to look at this passage twice. It's Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus shows us that this commandment is maybe a little more relevant than we may think. You shall not murder. It is pretty short. It's the shortest of the commandments so far as we've been moving through these. In Hebrew, it's even shorter. It's just two words, not murder. Okay, I got that. And honestly, as far as I know, everyone who's seated here this morning has been pretty good at keeping this commandment at least in the literal sense, in the physical sense. There's a little bit of confusion, though, that comes up with this commandment when you're teaching it in a small group or talking about it in a small group. And a confusion is, wait a minute, is this about murder or killing in general? Because Pastor Steve, when I read this growing up, it it always said something different. It said, thou shalt not kill. It didn't just say murder, it said kill. And that's what it does say in the King James translation, which is an excellent translation of scripture. Those translators were brilliant. But they were brilliant enough to assume that you were brilliant enough to know they're not talking about killing a bug, you know? Much to some children's chagrin, perhaps. There was a cricket when I came into church this morning. I have heard those things during a church service. I find them to be annoying, and I killed him. Doesn't apply to bugs. I'm good with God. You might be mad, but I'm good with God on that, right? It doesn't apply to killing a lamb, because think of the scripture, how you would sacrifice the paschal lamb. Can't apply to that. Doesn't apply to beef, thank God, or venison. As we read the Bible, it doesn't even apply to engaging in war, specifically if it were what theologians might refer to as a just war. It doesn't apply to capital punishment or the death penalty. In fact, one resource that I read says that the Bible actually calls for capital punishment over two dozen times. You can even read about it just right after the flood of Noah. In Genesis 9, 6, it says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. And we'll talk about that verse again in more detail later. It doesn't apply even to accidental death, except perhaps in the case of negligence. This commandment applies to what we in our judicial system generally think of as murder to one degree or another maybe even manslaughter. It applies to what David did to a man named Uriah, the Hittite, when David decided to 
break the seventh commandment by committing adultery, and then the sixth commandment by having Uriah killed. Murder. Premeditated murder. The ultimate act of revenge. You shall not murder. Why? (laughs) Why? Why is murder wrong? Well, I can think of several reasons that murder is wrong. You probably can as well. I'm just going to suggest four. First, it's wrong because God said so. God, why is murder wrong? Because I said so, right? (laughs) God is the one who gets to say. He is the one who gets to define that which is right and that which is wrong. You've heard the old adage that says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, And what that's telling us is that when people are given power, there is a tendency for that power to bring out the worst in them. And when that power increases until the point where it's you have all the power, it will absolutely corrupt people. And that is because at our core, we are corrupt human beings. We are corrupt as human beings. We have corruption in our DNA. And when we're given a lot of power, release the Kraken. You know, we're ready. We're ready to release that corruption. But God, he has no corruption in his person. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely unless we're talking about God. And when you're talking about God, when he makes the rules, then the rules are good, they are upright, they are pure, they are holy, they are just, they are moral, they are ethical. When God's not making the rules, that may or may not be the case. And that's because... In human circles, rules are made by those who are the most powerful, not by the most righteous. God makes the rules. Now, sometimes, and I'm going to take you on a little rabbit trail here, okay? Sometimes you hear people like to say, yeah, God is morally right, and he's upright, and he's pure, but you know, more people have been killed in the name of God than anything else. Have you heard that? Sure you have. And surely, religion, even Christian religion, has been associated with unspeakable atrocities. We don't deny that. But is that statement true? More people have been killed in the name of God than anything else. I want to read to you some lines from an article in the Washington Post. I don't know if you're familiar with the Washington Post. It is uh, owned by Jeff Bezos, who is the Amazon guy. Um, The Washington Post is anything but friendly to Christianity. Okay, so this isn't like Christianity Today saying this. This is coming from a publication that is not friendly toward religion in general. Who was the biggest mass murderer in the history of the world? Most people would assume the answer is Adolf Hitler, architect of the Holocaust. Others might guess Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, who may indeed have managed to kill even more innocent people than Hitler did, many of them as part of his Uh, as part of a terror famine that likely took more lives than the Holocaust. But both Hitler and Stalin are outdone by Mao Zedong. From 1958 to 1962, and just to give you a little perspective, I was born in there, 1961. This isn't like ancient history. Well, maybe it is. (laughs) Just don't talk about that. Stop it, David. (laughs) All right. From 1958 to 1962, Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward policy 
led to the deaths of 45 million people, easily making it the biggest episode of mass murder ever recorded. Here's what I want you to get from that. I want you to see that none of these murderers, and we could throw Lenin and Pol Pot into the mix, none of them killed in the name of God. None of them. They were publicly and privately atheistic. Pol Pot, Marxist atheist. Vladimir Lenin, militant atheist. Joseph Stalin instituted a five-year plan to implement atheism. Adolf Hitler, a practical atheist who stood against the confessing church. Mao Zedong, Marxist atheist. Now, what I don't want you to think that I'm saying here is that atheists are all bad, because they're not. I know atheists who are very good people. That's not the point. Here's the point. These were men who were making rules, saying what was right and what was wrong, without any eye toward God or ear toward heaven. And they are arguably the most murderous men in human history. That's the point. When humans, rather than God, make the rules, the ends are not always what we think they're going to be or hope they would be. So yeah, because I say so is a worthy statement for God. Murder is wrong because he says so. And you probably thought of this, murder is wrong because of the golden rule. If I don't want you to murder me, I probably ought not murder you, right? Jesus says in Matthew seven twelve, he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets. If I don't want to be murdered, I shouldn't be a murderer. But there are deeper reasons in scripture that murder is wrong. A third reason is because human life is uniquely sacred. You may have heard people talk about the sanctity of human life, the sacredness of human life. And human beings are sacred because they image God himself. Now, you know it is my habit to verb nouns all the time. And you're thinking, image is a noun, and he just made it into a verb. That's not me. Lots of people have done that in recent years. Noting that the way that we are to portray God is is stronger than just reflect his likeness. We are to image his likeness, to bear his likeness, to carry his likeness, to be his likeness. No one else in all creation is asked to do that. Not your cat or your dog, not a monkey, not a giraffe. Just the humans are given that privilege of imaging the creator. Remember when we were in Genesis 9, 6, 7 minutes ago maybe? And I said, we'll come back to this. Let's do that now. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God is speaking. And he says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed And then why? God doesn't have to give us a why, but he does. Here's why. For in the image of God, God made mankind. (laughs) Murder is wrong because it destroys something that is made for the express purpose of displaying God's image. I want you to imagine something with me for a moment. I want you to imagine that I brought an 8x10 photograph of you onto the platform. 
It's not really a photograph. I had a smaller photograph. I put it on a photocopier and I enlarged it like three times to get it to be here. And, and here I have this on copy paper, on Xerox paper, I have this photograph of you. It's not the best photo, but it is your likeness. It's not you, but it is your image on paper. And now imagine that I tear it up. I don't just tear it in half. I tear it in half and then I tear that in half and then I tear that. I tear it into bits so there's confetti. I utterly destroy it. How would you feel about that? (laughs) The thought crossed my mind that I could do that. I told Laurel, you know, I could do that. She said, Steve. And just her very aghastness, that's not a word, but it should be. Just the fact that she was, Steve, you can't do that, lets you know how wrong it would have been. For me, just to take a picture of you and copy it a half a dozen times, so it's several generations removed from your actual original picture, and put it on a, and, and bring it up here and tear it up, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that as an example. I wouldn't do that as a joke. Even though it doesn't hurt you physically, you would feel in your spirit, that's just wrong. It's wrong for him to tear up my picture. And you would be, dare I say, rightly so, you would be angry. Hmm. That's what murder does. It destroys something made in the image of God, something more than a photograph. Murder destroys a living, breathing person whose vocation, whose calling is to display God, his likeness, his image. Murder is wrong because human life is uniquely sacred. How about one more? Murder is wrong because it destroys that which God loves. And God loves humankind. Not just redeemed humankind. Not just your kind of humankind or my kind of humankind. Not just my political party or your political party. Not just American people. Not just white people. God loves humankind. And, and, and scripture is littered with this reality. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. If ever there was a moment to say, God so loved just these people, it might have been then because Jesus was in Israel. He could have said, for God so loved Israel. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. In Romans, the apostle Paul is writing to people in Rome that are outside of Israel. And he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, although some may choose to die for Uh, a good person, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that. I'm saying that verse, and a couple people are saying it with me under their breath. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Yeah. God loves the world, not just you and me. And like anyone else, he cares for the well-being of those he loves. You know, most of us, as we become adults, we kind of learn to roll with the punches. You understand what I mean by that? We kind of learn to take it on the chin when somebody does us wrong. I'm getting better at that, slowly getting better at that. But I want to tell you, if someone attacks my church, and starts talking trash about people in my church, I get angry because I love you. And when someone attacks your family and starts talking badly about them or physically hurting them, 
(laughs) you would be angry. You see, murder destroys something that God values. It attacks something that God values. And so it's wrong. He knows, I'm sorry, he, he wants us to recognize that and to know that. Obedience to this command is not just about killing somebody. Do you hear that? Obedience to this command is not just about killing someone. Remember when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount several months ago, we went through the Sermon on the Mount and we came to a passage that I I had on the screen about 10 minutes ago. Jesus is speaking and that's where he says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who does murder. Did I have this on the screen 10 minutes ago? Yeah. I just preached an hour and a half ago, so, you know, it could be redundant. Read it. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I used to look at these phrases in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus used when he said, you've heard it said long ago, do not murder. You heard it said long ago, do not commit adultery. And I used to say, Jesus is up in the ante. Do you know what I mean? He's making this even more important. But he's not up in the ante at all. Jesus is expressing the longstanding reality. And what he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount has always been the case. He is clarifying reality. And the reality is this. You don't have to shed blood to be disobedient to what God says in this commandment. Jesus says your anger against a brother or sister breaks the rule. You don't have to Take a life in order to break the golden rule. You can treat others badly in a way you would not want to be treated. And you are breaking this commandment. You don't have to raise your fist to damage that which is made in the image of God. You can raise a suggestion and damage something made in the image of God by your gossip. You don't have to pull a trigger to destroy something that God loves You can destroy it in many, many more socially acceptable ways and therefore come under judgment yourself. Breaking this commandment is easier and more common probably than you might have thought. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be a murderer. I don't want to be an agent of death. I would like to be an agent of life, wouldn't you? I would like to have a heart that is actually turned toward life so that rather than an agent of destruction, I am an agent of building up and encouraging and lifting and breathing life into people, into the things of God. How do I do that? Let me give you a few pointers right from the scripture. One of them is this. Keep a cool head. Keep a cool head. God uses that kind of language when he tries to help Cain who happened to be the first murderer in the history of the Bible. Cain is angry because his brother Abel and he have both taken and offered sacrifices to God and God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. And in that rejection, he's angry. Listen to a couple verses from the story in Genesis 4, starting at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Did you catch that very last sentence, that phrase? You must rule over it. You have got to keep 
a cool head. You have got to keep a cool head. I can personally tell you from my experience, this is not something I can do in my own strength. Because there are people in my life who know the buttons to push. You know what I'm talking about? Do you have those people in your life, in your workplace? They just know how to get under your skin and just make you kind of crazy. And I'm, I'm, I'd like to keep a cool head, but Jesus, you didn't have to deal with this person. You got those people? I can't deal with them in my own strength. Hmm. Neither could Cain. Cain couldn't keep a cool head on his own. I think, actually, that the conversation that God is having with Cain was kind of God's way of letting him know, I'm in your corner here, and I'll help you through this if you would like me to. I'm here. I'm present with you. But Cain went from talking to God to killing his brother in a field. Couldn't keep a cool head. I can't do that on my own. I need God's presence to help me do that. I need him to help me by his Holy Spirit who lives in us. And when I look to him, he will give me the help I need. So when you feel anger creeping into your heart, stop. Feel the anger. Stop. Talk to God before it escalates. God, I know you have said that I need to deal with this. I need you to help me obey you. I know that I should keep the golden rules, so I need you to help me treat this person as I would want to be treated. And God, I know that this person is made in your image, and I do not want to tear up your image even in my mind. And God, I don't understand why, but you love this person. I don't understand why you love me either. Help me value that which you love. Help me respond to you in the way you would have me respond. And I will tell you this, as a red-headed Scotsman, not so red anymore, is it? I will tell you that when you ask God to do that, he does that. He does that. You can turn your heart toward life and away from death if you will keep a cool head as God enables you to do so. Along the way, just leave the revenge with God. Just leave it with God. You know, until I was researching this sermon, I didn't realize how often God said this in Scripture. And this, isn't even, this probably isn't even a complete list. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, God says this, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. Well, there's once. Did he say it again? Yeah. He said it in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will pay back, pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. There's twice. In the New Testament, you find it in Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave good for God, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then on top of that, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 30, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. I feel sure that God doesn't want me to take those and say, yeah, baby, yeah, you're going to get yours. Sick him, God. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have that in mind. He may do that. He may not do that. If I leave the revenge with God, it's his call. And he has shown me a lot of grace. If he wants to show someone else that grace, so be it. 
What I think God is giving us, though, in these repeated, (laughs) repeated commands to leave the revenge with him, is he's inviting us to speak to him and say, God, I I thank you that I don't have to get even. I, I am so thankful to you for managing my grievances in these things with justice and with grace that I could never hope to synthesize, synthesize, I can't say that word, mix together as well as you can mix them together. I leave this in your hands. And when you leave your desire for revenge with God, your heart automatically turns toward life and away from death. You turn your heart to life by keeping a cool head, by leaving revenge with God, and by choosing to love and not to hate. You know that love is a choice, right? Did you know that? Love is something that there are surely feelings involved, but at the end of the day, you choose to love or not to. You know that love is a choice because, more than a feeling, because of the things God says about it. He says, love your enemies. I never had a feeling about an enemy that made me feel like I loved them or her. I've never felt like people, I've never felt a loving feeling toward people who behave as my enemies. People who would gossip about me. I never thought, oh, that's so sweet. I love them. Or someone who would actively work to destroy my reputation or my vocation. Oh, thank God for him. I just love that person. Or the pastor who years and years ago came to my church and tried to steal it right out from under me. That's a weird thing. Who would think to do that? Just kind of crazy. I didn't feel like, ah, isn't that nice of him? I love him. But I can tell you this without batting an eye. I choose to love those people because God tells me to. And when I choose to love those people, when I choose love and not hate, I turn my face and my heart toward life and away from death. God says to choose love. In passages like Romans chapter 14, 19, he says, therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads toward peace and mutual edification. And that is love. That is an expression of love. When you choose to love, your heart turns toward light. So years ago, I visited someone who was in jail who had been arrested for attempted murder. How do you break the ice when you're going to have a conversation with someone like that? You know, that's not something they covered at Tacoa Falls or Alliance Theological Seminary when I was there. You know, you're on one side of the glass with a phone in your hand. They're on the other with a phone in their hand. How do you bridge, how do you broach the subject, right? And so since I don't know how to do it, I'm the kind of guy that just jumps in, right? And so generally I say something like this. So what are you doing in here? (laughs) That's an icebreaker, right? What are you doing in here? The answer just absolutely intrigued me. And although I can't remember the response verbatim, it went something like this. So what are you doing in here? I don't know. We were talking, and I became so angry. I became so angry, I just didn't know what to do. And suddenly, I found myself with a kitchen knife in my hand. Like a butter knife? You had like a butter knife? Because I knew that that person did not have a butter knife. Like a butter knife? No! 
like the sharp knife, like a steak knife. It was in my hand. And the anger, it clouded my vision and my mind, and I started to use the knife. And I could not believe it was happening. Now, Dr. Sovine, who taught me how to preach, told me I need to tell you how that ended, because he won't pay attention to anything else until I do. But I think it's kind of just a mean thing to do to let you wonder for the rest of the... No, no, no. So the way that ended is the person escaped that other person's knife and called the police. They came and took care of the situation. A trial was held, and that is history now. But think of that story for a minute. We were talking, and I became so angry. Escalation. Escalation. I became so angry, I didn't know what to do, so I found myself a kitchen knife, with a kitchen knife in my hand. Escalation. Escalation. And I started to use the knife. Wow. Do you see how important that it might be <laughs> for you to turn your heart toward life? and always turn away from death? Do you see how important it is for you to catch anger when it escalates and to go to God and say, God, I don't know what to do with this. Help me obey you because I want to do the right thing and I want to honor that which is in your image and I want to love that which you love and I want to treat this person the way you want me to treat them. Help me. Do you see how important that is? Do you see how incredibly relevant This commandment is to you, even if you were the kind of person that would never pick up the kitchen knife. Because it's not a matter of spilling blood. And Jesus isn't up in the ante when he says anger. Jesus is really addressing the reality. It's a matter of your heart. A heart that cannot afford to allow itself to turn toward death. A heart that needs to always be turned toward life. And I want to pray that that would be my heart and yours as we conclude our time today. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together. So, just in case you just now woke up, (laughs) we're not praying that we never murder anyone. Here's what we're praying. That the anger that is so common to our existence that the divisiveness that is so prevalent in our society, that the lack of tolerance that seems to be the norm in our world, that the inability to compromise that all of us seem to be touched by, we are praying that our hearts would turn away from that, not just because it might lead us to murder, that's the least of my worries, but because it does not honor this commandment, and therefore it does not honor God. And I want to honor God, and you want to honor God. And so our prayer is, God, help us to be men and women who are men and women of life, not of death. So I want to take just a moment in quietness for you to talk to God about that yourself. Laurel's going to play a couple notes here, if she would. And just in maybe 30 seconds, 20 of quietness, you talk to God about your own anger and your own feelings in this. And then we'll pray together.
Father in heaven, we are amazed at your love for us. We are delighted (laughs) that you, with every reason to be angry toward humankind, did not set your mind on death, but on life. Through Jesus and his death on the cross on our behalf, you have given us an opportunity to live. That as we turn away from darkness and turn toward light, as we trust that Jesus' death took our guilt and our shame, we experience a personal transformation and a new inhabitation of the Spirit of Christ within us. Thank you for that saving power, that sanctifying influence in our life. I would pray, Father, that as we're gathered here, that we would live as men and women and boys and girls of life, that our hearts would be turned from death and darkness and turned toward light and life in Christ. And that this would not be like a one-time decision thing for us, but this would be a lifestyle for us to be men and women of life. So that the absurdity of never murdering, I'm sorry, so that the absurdity of murdering someone would be matched by an equal absurdity of becoming that angry with someone, that we would not be angry. We need your Holy Spirit to make this happen. We need the sanctifying, cleansing power of Christ to make this happen. So we ask you to make it so as we humble our lives before you, and we trust that you will do so. We trust that you will give us power to behave well in those relationships that it's hard to do so. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.